Welcome, everybody. Good to see you. My name is Tim Harris. I'm pastor here at Woodburn Baptist Church. It's good to see you. I got my blue jeans on today. It's been D-Now weekend all weekend long. Disciple Now weekend with the teenagers. We've had over 100 just teenagers. They're all in the cafe right now with parents, with uh, host homes, uh, all of the workers. It's been just a great Great, great weekend and excited for what God is doing. Uh, Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Let's get verse 1. Start there. We often speak of the importance of imitating Christ, of loving Jesus and following his example. But the truth is, for many of us, we don't really know enough about Jesus to follow his example or to know what it would mean to uh, have his control over our lives. And that would be the preacher's fault. We need to focus on Christ and preach Jesus in such a way where people know Jesus. They know what his life was, what his example looks like, and the authority and power that he holds over our lives. So I'm really trying here, especially leading up into Easter, to make sure that we focus on Jesus, that you can see his life and his example. That's why we start in Matthew chapter 4 today. Verse 1, the the temptation of Jesus is where we will begin. Uh, A number of years ago, a group from our church went to uh, Johnson City, Tennessee to do a a mission trip there. We worked in the mountains. Uh, A lady had a house in bad need of repair. Her name was Miss Evelyn. And a group of us were there. I was just uh, with the group working. I wasn't preaching. I was fixing the floor like everybody else. I was dressed like everybody else. And uh, so about two days into it, the older lady, Miss Evelyn, uh, was standing in the kitchen with all of us. And and she looked and said, now, which one of you is the preacher? And so just to have fun out there, I said, which one do you think is a preacher? And she said, Atnett just left. And that was Chip Jenkins, y'all. Chip Jenkins left. He had a pair of overalls, and he looked more like a preacher than I did. But anyway, she said, Atnett just left. I said, no, that's not him. It's Chip Jenkins. And she pointed at Chip Willingham. Said, Atten right there, Chip Willingham. The Chip standing there, y'all, in, in overalls. He didn't look any more like a preacher than I did either. Uh, let's just be honest. Uh, but anyway, Chip Willingham right there. And I said, nope, that's not him. I said, Miss Evelyn, it's me. It's me. She just looked at me. I said, it's me. I said, was I even going to be your third choice? And she said, nope. Nope. I guess uh, I, I didn't look like a preacher uh, to, to Miss Evelyn. Uh, I, I don't know that I still look like a preacher half the time. I don't know what a preacher's supposed to look like. After 20 years, I don't always know. Uh, it, it's, it's something of... Uh, I guess part of my life's purpose to figure out what it means to be pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church, what it means to live out my calling. It's just part of accepting that call from the Lord, understanding what it means. And, and at this particular moment in Jesus's life, we know that he's fully God. We know that Jesus, being the very nature of God, did not consider a cloth with God something to be grasped, but, but emptied himself. That was Philippians 2 last week. We talked about that, how Jesus emptied himself. So being fully God, he empties himself of all divine privileges and all divine prerogatives, and he takes on human form. He becomes fully human. So Jesus is the only one about whom you can tell two stories. He is fully God, and he is fully human at at all times. So he knows what it means to be fully God. I, I guess that the temptation, part of what is happening here is Jesus has to figure out what it means to be fully human what it means to be fully human, what it means to live in a body of flesh and bones, what it's going to mean to fill out uh, his uh, God-given mission to save the world. 
Now, in the temptation of Jesus, before we read, as most translations will read, look at verse 3. The devil says, if you are the son of God, uh, again, verse uh, 5, if you are the son of God, jump off. Uh, Verse 8, if you are the son of God, it's it's, it's that if you are the son of God. Um, Let me tell you this. I'm not not any kind of Greek scholar. I'm not. But but we all know that the New Testament was written in Greek, that uh, Matthew has written his gospel in, in the Greek language. The Greek language has one word. That means either if or since, if you're translating into English, if or since, it's the same word. And you make the translation based on context. So it can mean either since or if you make the decision based on context. So translators have made the decision to translate this if. I would say that based on context, you would have to translate that word since. And it makes a difference. I know it seems small, but it makes a big difference to say if you are the son of God or to say since you are the son of God. I I argue that it's got to be since because when you say if, it sounds like the temptation is for Jesus to prove who he is. If you're the son of God, then jump off the temple. You understand? If you're the son of God, then turn these stones into bread. Most of us read this and we think that the devil wants Jesus to prove something. But the devil knows who Jesus is. And Jesus knows who Jesus is. And so there is no need to prove his power or his identity. Everybody knows who Jesus is. If you're doubting this, look back to chapter 3. What just happened from verse, chapter 3, verse 13, going into our passage today? What happens at chapter 3, verse 13? Jesus is baptized. What happens in verse 17 as Jesus comes up out of the water? A voice from heaven says what? This is my beloved son. This is my son. So if there was any doubt who Jesus is, now there's no doubt. A voice from heaven has said, this is my son. So everybody knows who Jesus is. The temptations are not about Jesus needing to prove who he is. So as we read, let's understand the word is since. Since you are the son of God. So the temptation, uh, this, this, this moment in Jesus' early ministry is not about proving who he is, but trying to discern, since you are the son of God, what are you going to do? What will you do? What kind of Messiah are you going to be? Matthew chapter 4, let's read it together, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. Let that sink in. Jesus was what? Led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. For 40 days and 40 nights he fasted and became very hungry. During that time, the devil came and said to him, since you are the son of God, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, since you're the son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, he will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Next, the devil took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. I will give it all to you, the devil said, if you will kneel down and worship me. 
Get out of here, Satan, Jesus told him. For the scriptures say you must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. So the devil went away and angels came and took care of Jesus. Okay, there's a lot there. Let's go back to verse 1. What's interesting to you about verse 1? Anything strange about verse 1? Yeah, the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. Why would the Spirit lead anybody, let alone Jesus, why would the Spirit lead Jesus into the wilderness where the devil's waiting for him? Why? Well, I guess first off, we have to separate two things. There's a difference between temptation and sin. To be tempted is not to sin. So it is not that the Spirit leads Jesus out into a situation where Jesus is going to sin. We know that Jesus is the only sinless one. Jesus never sinned. But it's important for you to understand, not just that he never sinned, but that he was tempted. He was tempted in all the same ways that you and I are tempted. Did you understand? We said last week that Jesus, being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he empties himself. He takes on human form. You see, the important thing is Jesus is going to live my story so that I can live his story. He's going to become as I am so that I can be made to be as as he is. But understand, he's got to be what we are. In order for Jesus to save one of us, he's got to be as one of us. And that means he's got to understand what temptation is. Now, he never sinned and he's not going to sin, but he is tempted. Temptation is not the same thing as sin. So it says the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. This has to happen. Jesus has to go into the wilderness. He has to go through this process. He has to tangle up with the devil. He has to ponder these questions. These things are necessary. It's necessary. You can think of it as like, as like a, a crucible, a, a place where full surrender actually begins to take hold. The place where you have to discern the difference, the real difference between obedience and disobedience. The place where you figure out what it's going to mean to follow your God-given mission. See, Jesus is probably 30 years old at this moment. I know 30 sounds pretty young to a lot of us. I mean, 30 years, he's, he's a young man. Where has he been? I mean, you know the story of how he was born in the manger. You know the story of how he was lost in the temple when he was 12 years old. But since age 12, where has he been? We don't know anything about his life. We don't know anything about where he spends all of these years. He's 30 years old, you all. Well, he's been in Nazareth. I, I guess we know that. that. That's his hometown. That's where his mother, his father, Joseph, were from. He's, he's lived there. It's interesting. By the time Jesus begins his public ministry at age 30, Joseph is obviously dead. We can put that together just by the simple reason that he, he's never there. He never makes any appearance in the Gospels. And by the time Jesus dies on the cross, Jesus assigns the care of his mother to his disciple John. So obviously Mary has no one to care for her. Joseph has died. So at some point in Jesus's young life, he loses his father. We can put that together. We, we know that. We know that Joseph was a carpenter. And when people talk about Jesus who don't know much about who he is, they, all they seem to know is he's the carpenter's son. So Jesus somehow lives in obscurity. 
as a carpenter's son. There's probably all likelihood that, that he actually learned something of the trade of being a carpenter. It would be natural for a young man to follow in his father's footsteps in that way. So perhaps at least some of his life, these 30 years, Jesus has actually worked as a carpenter. Any idea if that's true? It just makes sense that he would have. Historians tell us this. It's not in the Bible anywhere, but, but it's in history. Uh, the Roman government, a couple of years before this would have happened, probably Jesus would have been late 20s in Nazareth. The, the Roman government wanted to uh, teach the people of Nazareth a lesson. And when the government wants to teach a lesson, they typically do it in brutal, brutal terms. And so uh, historians tell us that they rounded up men in Nazareth, men that they considered to be rebels or enemies of the state or any kind of criminal. They just rounded up men in Nazareth and crucified them. They lined the streets with their crosses. Now, some of you probably think Jesus was the only one crucified, but no, you know, the Roman Empire perfected crucifixion as a means of capital punishment. It was brutal. It, it, it sent a message, and to have the streets lined with men dying slow, agonizing death over days, hanging on the cross, their blood running in the streets. Understand, Jesus would have lived in Nazareth, and he would have seen that. I don't know what it is. It's the spirit, obviously, but at some point, at this point, Jesus realizes that he can't stay a carpenter anymore, that he's not going to live in obscurity any longer. He comes out, he begins his ministry. He goes straight to the Jordan River where John baptizes him, where the spirit declares, this is my beloved son, and immediately he's taken into the wilderness where the devil's waiting for him. I can't explain all of that. I, I think it's, it's absolutely amazing that his ministry begins here in the wilderness. But, but I guess the only thing I can say there is that Jesus goes through the wilderness because sooner or later we all go through the wilderness. This is a part of what it is to be human. Understand, the temptation for Jesus is not in some way to figure out what it means to be God. He has been in all eternity from all existence, God. He knows what that is. Maybe the temptation has to do with, with his ability to be fully human. Can you be fully human? So Jesus has been in the wilderness these 40-something days in his aloneness, in this crucible, and it says he hasn't had anything to eat or drink. Of course he hasn't. He's in the wilderness. It's not like you can pack a lunch. It's not like he can go out for food. He stays there because the Spirit leaves him there. And so he's in a situation where he cannot eat and cannot drink, and he becomes hungry. He becomes thirsty. And that's when the devil makes his first move. I find it fascinating. The devil's been there the whole time, but he waits. He waits. Why does the devil wait? Well, understand, the devil works here in this story the same way he works in your story. And what you and I forget is the devil's got nothing else to do. He's got nowhere else to be. He's your enemy, just like he's the enemy of Jesus. He's got nowhere else to go. He can wait. And he's delighted to wait. He will wait for you to come to your weakest moment. You understand? He will wait. He will wait till he can bait that trap of temptation. And he will wait until the very perfect moment to spring that trap on you. He's got nowhere else to go. He's got nothing else to do. This is his full-time job. So he waits. 
He waits for Jesus in the wilderness day after day after day, going without food, going without water. Some of us wouldn't make it past a meal. I mean, we can't miss a single meal, but Jesus goes 40 days. And at the end of 40 days, then the devil shows up with temptation number one. And what does the devil say? Since you're the son of God, what? Since you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. Yeah, turn these stones into bread. Now, let me just ask you, where's the sin in that? Would it have been a sin for Jesus to turn a stone into a sloppy joe? Because he could have done that. And I would have. Is there sin in that? He could have fed himself. And why would he not feed himself? He could. He's God. And he's hungry. 40 days hungry. Where's the sin? All he has to do is reach down and pick up any stone. He could pick up, he could pick up you know, a handful of grass and make it spaghetti. He could feed himself in any way he wanted to. Where's the sin? Well, it's complicated. It's complicated. It's not so much that it would have been a sin for Jesus to turn the stones into bread. If you're just speaking in those simple terms, I don't think that would have been a sin in itself. He's hungry and he has power. Easiest thing in the world to do would have been simply to turn something into food and feed himself. He's going to multiply the loaves and fishes later in the wilderness. You understand? He has this power to work these miracles. Why not just work a miracle now for yourself? Well, because it's not about himself. Remember, it's not if you're the son of God. It's not prove it by doing something impressive. It has more to do with since you are the son of God, why wouldn't you just feed yourself? You're the son of God. You have power. Why don't you just feed yourself? You don't have to go through this. You don't have to be hungry. You don't have to be hungry for a moment. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to endure another moment's discomfort. Feed yourself. Just turn the stones into bread. You're the son of God. But, but you understand? Since you're the son of God, the, the real question here is not, are you hungry? Can you feed yourself? The question is, since you're the son of God, what are you going to do? How are you going to live out this mission? What does it mean to be the son of God? And Jesus knows right away that it's not about his needs. He did not come. He didn't leave heaven, empty himself and come down here to put his needs front and center. Of course he's hungry. Of course he suffers hunger. He chooses that for the sake of me and you. Because you and I can't turn stones into bread. You and I know what it is to be in the wilderness alone. We know what it is to tangle with the devil. And now Jesus knows what it is to be hungry. He's not going to make it about his needs. He didn't come to take care of his needs. You see, what you have to understand is at the very moment when you make your life about you, at the very moment when you put your needs at the center, that's the moment when you've abandoned God's purpose for your life. And Jesus knows that. It's to make his needs right now front and center, to make his hunger the most important thing. That is going to cause him to abandon the mission for which the Father has sent him. It's not going to be about taking care of himself. It's not going to be about caring for his own needs. 
devil just causes him to think about himself. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to go through this. Turn the stones into bread. And Jesus says, the word of the Lord says, man does not live by bread alone. Interesting answer and interesting what Jesus does there. Do you see that? Jesus says people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Right there, Jesus compares what? He compares God's word to what? To food. Makes a comparison. He compares God's word to food. He says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, God's word is food. In what way is God's word food? Because it's important for understanding Jesus' response here. In what way is God's word food? There's another story in the New Testament in John, Gospel of John, where he meets a woman at the well. Do you remember that? And, and the disciples had gone into town to get food, but Jesus stayed back. And while they were gone, he spoke with the woman at the well. And after the disciples came back, they, they, they were worried that Jesus perhaps hadn't eaten. And what did Jesus say? I have food that you know nothing about first. And then Jesus says, my food is what? to do the will of the Lord. My food is to do the will of the Lord. So Jesus compares God's word to food, but it's not exactly the way you and I think of it. When we think about God's word being food, when we think about, you know, food for our souls, and it is, that's an accurate way of interpreting that. God's word is food for your soul. But we think of it as more of like food for thought. It's like, you know, Pastor Tim, I love to get up every morning and I get in the Word and, and I find myself a verse and then I think about that all day long. It's like food for thought for us, you, you know? Or Pastor Tim, I get in the Word and I read and I can read and read. And as long as I live, I continue to find new things in God's Word because God's Word is just that deep. And, and all of that is true. But when Jesus says that, that God's word is food for him, it's not food for thought. Understand, it's fuel for action. And not food for thought, fuel for action. Remember what James says, be ye doers of the word and not hearers only. You understand? So it's not about just simply knowing God's word. It's not about thinking about God's word. It, it's obedience. So what Jesus is saying right here is that hearing and obeying God's word is the most important part of life, the most important part of his life, the most important part of your life. Hearing and obeying God is the most important part of life. It's food. Uh, obedience is food. So the devil has tempted Jesus to put his needs first, to, you know, just take advantage of his divinity in order to escape, you know, the hunger and everything else that goes with being human. But Jesus will have none of that. He didn't come for himself. He came for us. He came to fulfill a mission from God. And being obedient to the Father's will is the most important thing of all to Jesus. Nobody lives by bread alone, Jesus says, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So the devil, verse 5, took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple and said, since you are the son of God, jump. Highest point on the temple. And the devil said, since you're the son of God, jump. That would be awesome. I think that would be awesome. How many of you are afraid of heights? It would not be awesome for you. I understand. 
Yeah, I think it would be awesome. I love heights. I love it. I love that idea. And the thought that you could just stand up there and just, wow, you know, that'd be awesome. You're the son of God, the devil says, jump. Because you know what the Bible says. Understand the devil quotes scripture here. Let that blow your mind for a moment. The devil quotes scripture. He says, doesn't it say in the Bible that God's going to take care of you? Doesn't it say that, that he's going to send his angels to, to catch you so that, so that you, won't even, you won't even hit your, you're not even going to stub your toe on a rock. I mean, the devil knows the Bible says God's going to take care of you. He's going to, I mean, you're the son of God. Just jump. When you jump, the angel's going to come. God's going to bear you up. You're not going to get hurt. Just jump. Is there sin in that? Would it have been the sin for Jesus to jump? Well, it's complicated, isn't it? I mean, it's complicated. So since you're the son of God, jump. God's going to take care of you. Jesus says, thou shalt not put the Lord your God to the test. What's that mean? Don't put the Lord your God to the test. It, it, it's a particular kind of temptation, and I think it's a kind of temptation that is probably more laid in the path of religious folks like you and me. Because I think we're often the ones most likely to put God to the test in this kind of way. Understand, it's complicated. The devil uses the Bible here, and he uses a promise of God that God's going to take care of you, that God is going to send his angels to protect you, hold you up with their hands, won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Now, it doesn't specifically say jump off a building and God will catch you, but it's a promise nonetheless, isn't it? That he's, he's not going to let you land, that he's not going to let you fall. I mean, so the devil just says, take advantage of that. It says right there, the Lord isn't going to let anything happen to you, so jump off a cliff. Now, would any of us think that? Would we actually think that way? God's going to take care of me so I can just jump off a cliff? Is that how we live? No, no. But we still often sort of feel like that by our religious habits and by our religion, we can sort of manipulate God. We often act and think like, you know, if, if I do certain things, then I will put God in a corner and he will have to bless me. I mean, honestly, that's how a lot of people approach church attendance. If I just, if I'm a good church person, if I show up at church on, on Sunday and if I don't cuss and if I don't drink and if I don't chew and I don't go with the girls that do, then God is going to bless me. God will have to bless me. I'm, I've known people this way, haven't you? It's just that idea that, you know, I, I'm going to live in such a way where I'm going to, God's going to be obligated to me. And he's going to have to do what I want him to do because I've already done my, my part. You see, it's that idea. You know, God says that he'll take care of you, so just go ahead. Just put him to the test. Jump off the building. You know, following Jesus always involves a, a leap of faith like that. But you're foolish to think that that leap is always going to be painless for you. You're foolish to think that there's not risk involved. You're foolish to think that by your religion or by anything else you can say or do, that you're going to obligate God to somehow always come through for you. God is free and God is sovereign, and he's never going to be obligated to you. Now, he loves you, and by his faithfulness and by his goodness, he will never abandon us, never leave us, never forsake us. But it's never going to be the kind of situation where you control him with your religion. Or you control him by what you say or what you do or by the corners you think you can back him into with the Bible. It's never going to work that way. 
He's never going to owe you anything. Never ever are you going to be in a place where you feel like, ha ha, God, I've got you now. You have to. No, God never has to do anything for us. He does what he does out of love and faithfulness. The scriptures say you must not test the Lord your God, Jesus responds. Next, the devil takes him to the peak of a very high mountain and shows him all of the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And the devil says, I'll give them to you. I'll give them to you. All you have to do, worship me. I'll give them to you. Now, anything interesting about that to you? What does the devil sort of assume here? That they're his to give. Are they? In a way, yeah. You know, Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. How did the devil take ownership of kingdoms of the world? Who actually was given dominion over the things of creation? Remember that? Yeah, Adam and Eve. We were created to have dominion over everything down here. What happened to that plan? Yeah, we, we blew it. How did we blow it? We blew it by sin. And, and so what happens in effect when we begin to listen to the serpent? We listen to the devil. And what happens? Yeah, we, we sort of gave it away, didn't we? So in a sense, when the devil says, I'll give them to you, there is a sense in which they're still his. He sort of owns them. It's temporary. It doesn't mean that he has power. He's just kind of got squatter's rights at the present. And we do know that Jesus himself has come to save the world. Jesus has come to deliver the world, to set the world free from the power of the evil one. We know that this is why he's come. It's why he's come. And so this is sort of an amazing sort of moment where the devil says, hey, I'll give them to you. All you have to do is worship me. He wouldn't even have to mean it, you know? He wouldn't have to mean it. Just kind of bow, curtsy, say the devil's name. The devil says, I'll give it to you. You don't even have to mean it. Nobody will ever know. Just do this here. It'll all be yours now. You see the temptation in that? Now, remember, Jesus being the very form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on human form, all the way to the point of what? Death on the cross, so that at the name of Jesus, every, every knee should bow in the earth, on the earth, and, and under the earth, and every tongue proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. You understand? I mean, I mean the, the point is, Jesus is going to have the name above every name. He, he is going to have all of this, but, but he's going to go by the way of the cross. He, he has to go by the way of the cross. But, but what's the devil offering here? You can have it quick. I'll give it to you today, and you won't have to suffer. won't have to go to the cross. You don't have to go through another minute of this mess. Just bow to me now. Just, you know, curtsy, say my name, and I will give you all of this. It's, it's a shortcut to glory. You see that? It's, it's, it's a shortcut. The problem is what the devil's offering isn't exactly, it's not exactly what God has for Jesus. What does God have for Jesus? The kingdoms of the world? That's the little part of it. 
That's the little part of it. What is it that God has for Jesus? That, that at the very name of Jesus, the name above all names, at the very name of Jesus, every knee should bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, under the earth, above the earth, in the earth. I mean, it's not just the kingdoms of the world. It's not just like being king of the world. I mean, that sounds like a big deal, but that's not exactly what God has for Jesus. What God has for Jesus is much bigger than just being king of the world. Do, do you see that? Do you see that? that? That God isn't just sending Jesus here so he can sort of rule like, like a great big president and rule the world. No, 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 no. He's going to have a name that is higher than all other names. But he can't have a name above other names if he bows today to the devil. If he bows and says the devil's name, do you understand? He's not exactly getting what, what God has sent him to, to get. But it's a, it's a pretty good consolation prize. It's all of this in all of its glory. It's not the same thing, though. But you could miss the cross. I think all of the temptations that you and I face in one way or the other probably are closer to this. Because for the most part, this is how the devil comes at us. He approaches us in, in terms of our desires. He'll take a desire that is a human desire, something like hunger. Or, or something like that, that desire to be loved and to connect with people. The devil will take those things. And those aren't sinful things. Those are good things, godly things. These are things that God put in us. But the devil will take those things. And he'll just twist them. And, and instead of offering you exactly what God has for you, he'll offer you something that looks like it. Something that's close. It's a shortcut. In other words, you can have this today. You know, what God has for you off in glory, that's a long way off. But I will give you pleasure today. All you have to do is say my name. You know, this is how the devil comes at you. You have this desire to be loved. You have this desire to know intimacy, to, to be with other people. And the devil will, will take that and he'll come at you and he'll tempt you with pornography. You're saying, it's not the same thing. But if it's pleasure you're seeking, I'll give you pleasure today. And you won't even have to do the hard work of, of dealing with a wife. You won't even have to do the hard work of trying to please a person. You can only please yourself. I'll give you pornography today. Just click this link. You see how that works? It's a shortcut. And it, it's sort of like what you want, and it's sort of like what God created you for, only nothing like it at all. It's, it's lesser. It's easier. It's a shortcut. We love shortcuts. That's why on television, they're constantly advertising some new workout machine that all you have to do is work out for three minutes a day and you can have a body like a swimsuit model. And man, we're like, what is that number? You know, what is that number? You know, I want to be a swimsuit. I mean, you know, swimsuit season is coming up, you guys. 30 minutes a day, we can have the body. You know, what's that number? You know, we all fall for it because it's a shortcut, right? We're thinking, man, if I, all I got to do is, you know, this for like 30 minutes a day, and I can still eat, you know, half-priced corn dogs at Sonic and, and a half-priced milkshake, you know? For, I can do this for, you know, th three minutes a day, you know? So you do, you know, give me the number, give me the equipment, you know? You remember those things, little stirrups you stand on and you're supposed to like do chin-ups like this, but you had the spring on your feet and they'd pop off your feet and hit you in the face. You remember those? Yeah. yeah, three minutes a day of that. Yeah, that, that's why about every five years or so our church will do a church-wide yard sale for missions or whatever. And y'all know what we get? We get 
we can like line up exercise machines down 240, you know, all of the exercise machines, you know. It was a shortcut promise to us. How'd that work out, swimsuit models? <laughs> yeah. The, the truth is, everything that God promises us, he delivers, but somehow it's not often um, as quick as we want it. it it's, it's often down a path. And it's a path that honestly looks a whole lot like taking up your cross. It looks a whole lot like saying no when something in you really, really wants to say yes. Sometimes it looks a lot like putting others and their needs ahead of yourself and your needs. The devil wants you to fail in your mission that God has sent you here for in the purpose of your life. But, but honestly, he doesn't really have to make you fail at that. That's much too much work. The devil is lazy. So rather than cause you to fail at the giant purpose God has given for you, what the devil will do is just invite you to succeed at some lesser, easier goal. You know what I mean? Just offer you to succeed at something that's closer, something that's easier, something that'll cost you less. And, and it nearly works every time. We, we take the shortcut. We take for the, the dimmer glory. We, we go for the bait in the trap, and we miss everything that God had for us. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Jesus said to the devil, get out of here. You must worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And the devil went away. Okay, that's where the story ends. Um, we don't get to rewrite the end of the story, but if I could, if I could, you know how I would end the story? At this point, Jesus you know, squashes the devil like a bug. You know, since he is the son of God, he squashed the devil like a bug because he could, right? He, he could. And that's what he's also come to do, to, to defeat the enemy. And the devil knows that. I mean, why doesn't Jesus just finish him off? He's got him right there where he wants him. It's just amazing, what, you know, one-two punch. You know, the devil comes at him and Jesus says, you know, man does not live by bread alone. Poof, you know, popped him. I mean, popped him good. And then the devil comes back at him and says, jump off the temple. And Jesus is like, poof, you know, no, no, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And then and the devil comes up with this, uh, all of this I'll give you, worship me. And Jesus is like, pop, you know, no way. You know, you worship the Lord and him alone will you serve. I mean, one, two, three, now knock him out. Now, crush him now. You've got him exactly where you want him. You're in the wilderness. They'll never find his body. Just crush him like a bug. You're the son of God. You could do that, and that's why you've come. Put him away. Why does Jesus not just put him away? Squash him. Crush him. End this. Because what happens... The devil goes away. Well, he goes away, y'all. Y'all know what happens. He always comes back. But now next time when he comes back, it's probably not going to be Jesus in the wilderness. It's going to be me. It's going to be you. Why did Jesus just not finish him off while he had him right there? Well, as it turns out, that becomes our job. 
You know this, right? Book of Revelation, they overcame by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony. It becomes our job. What that means is when you find yourself in the wilderness, when the devil comes at you, when he baits the trap and sets temptation right right in your path, in, in, in those very moments, you crush him. You resist him. The, the word of God says you resist the devil and he will flee from you. He, he runs from you. He runs from you because greater is he that is in you than he does in the world. You, you are greater in Christ than, than the devil. You crush him. Jesus had to go through the wilderness because everybody goes through the wilderness. Jesus had to face the evil one because every one of us has to face the evil one. And in Jesus' victory over the evil one, you and I have victory over the evil one. So next time he comes at you, crush him. Crush him. Pray with me. Oh, Jesus, you have been tempted in all the ways that we are tempted, yet you never sinned. Has to be the greatest miracle of our salvation that you faced the temptations we face and you never sinned. Lord Jesus, that kind of power is a power that we do not have except from you, except in you. So, Lord Jesus, let us know that power because we feel powerless before our sins, Lord. We feel like a slave. Lord, when the devil comes at us, Lord, with the, the, the trap already baited, Lord, we step into it every single time. Help us, Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord, to feed our souls on the bread of your word in such a way where it's not just knowledge in our head, but it becomes fuel for obedience, Lord. Help us to know that hearing your voice and obeying you is the most important part of our lives. Help us, Lord, not to think that, that because of our religion that you owe us something now, that, that we control you, that, that we somehow can live any way we want and you'll come along behind and, and, and protect us, Lord. Help us to know that that's not how it works. It's a relationship of trust and obedience and, and, and joy, love. Lord, forgive us because so much of what you offer us is, is held it is held with you, O Christ, somewhere in eternity, somewhere long down the road. And this road is long for us, Lord Jesus. We become weary of doing good. We become weary of saying no when we really want to say yes, Lord. We get tired of waiting for rewards. So just give us grace today, Lord Jesus, in the face of the evil one. Lord, give us grace to pick up our crosses and follow you. Lord, this path to glory, this path to satisfaction, this path to everything we desire, it passes through Calvary. So, Lord, help us to love you and trust you and follow you 
even when the path demands we carry a cross. Help us, Lord, to take up the cross today to follow you, and by following you, have victory over the evil one. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, but for our sakes. Amen.